center of the story, Adnan. Listeners were left wondering week after week about who he really was. Serial presented two options. Adnan was either an innocent, wrongfully convicted young man who had suffered a great travesty of justice, or he was a cold-blooded, psychopathic murderer, driven by either jealousy or brutal religious beliefs, who had managed to manipulate his loved ones into believing his innocence for 15 years. This book will tell the stories Serial didn't and address issues of justice, bigotry, faith, community, devastation, healing, and hope from the point of view of Adnan and those who support him. I am here to tell Adnan's story as, after so many years of living it and studying it, I see it. But more importantly, to give Adnan his own voice back. Throughout the book, Adnan's own contributions will do just that. On October 10, 2013, Adnan wrote a letter to Sarah Koenig. Dear Miss Koenig, I received your letter today. Thank you for taking the time to write and also for sending the stamp and paper. This prison does not allow us to receive those items, so it should have been mailed back to you. I appreciate your considering that I may have been low on supplies, but I am very fortunate to have family and friends that have always taken care to make sure I have everything I need. So I have no problem being able to correspond with you. My attorney, Justin Brown, wrote me last week regarding his initial conversation with you. He described the things you two spoke about, and he advised me that it would be a good idea to pursue this with you. I wrote him back that I agreed, and I intend to call him as soon as I can so he and I can discuss it some more. I did have some questions, but most were answered when I received your letter. It made sense that Rabia contacted you and sought your assistance. Aside from my mother and father, I don't think there is anyone who has fought more to prove my innocence. For many years, she has urged me to contact someone from the media, but I've always been very reluctant to do so. The reason being that all the media coverage of my case has been negative, and I did not think any good would come of it. I understood that it would always be a gamble because if the person did not believe I was innocent, then it would just be another negative report. However, Justin mentioned in his letter that you stated you would not do the story unless you believed I was innocent, and that really allayed my concerns. I'll be honest with you, Ms. Koenig. After about 15 years of studying my case, I can't point to something and say, this proves I didn't commit the crime. I could describe certain elements of the prosecution's case that, to me, are pretty unbelievable. I'm not sure exactly what you do know about my case. You wrote that you had read some of the transcripts and spoke with several people involved in the case. I don't want to assume what you know, and I think this letter would end up a mess if I tried to explain the things that occurred in my case that prevented me from having a fair trial. I think the thing that frustrates me the most is the timetable the state presented. Between Jay Wilde's several completely different statements and the state's varying theories, it is not easy to piece together. But in the second trial, the prosecutor, in closing arguments, summed it up using the records of my cell phone. Basically, they narrated a series of events, according to Jay Wilde's, and pointed to an entry on the cell phone record at a certain time as proof of the event. Just as human DNA is used to place a person at a certain location, the cell phone records were used, to me, as a form of technological DNA to place me at a certain place and time. Which sounds pretty good on the surface, but if you were to backtrack and trace the footsteps of the prosecutor's theory using the cell phone records as a marker, I believe it is physically impossible for me to have committed this crime. Essentially, the theory was that I committed the murder by 2.36 p.m. on January 13, 1999, exact time placed on phone call. Now, school lets out at 2.15 p.m., So that leaves 21 minutes, which may seem like a long time, but it is virtually impossible if you consider the following facts. 1. The final bell rings at 2.15 p.m., but you can't just leave and jump in the car. There are 1,500 other students filling up the hallways and stairwells of a four-story building. 2. 
Students are not allowed to park in front of the school building. We had to park in the back. There were strict rules about that. The back parking lot of Woodlawn High School is enclosed within a bus loop. You could Google map it. At 2.15 p.m., every car in that back parking lot is encircled by a ring of buses loading up. You can't leave until the buses leave, and they wait 10 to 15 minutes before they fill up and leave. 3. The route to the Best Buy parking lot, where the state eventually settled on as a murder scene, traverses several stoplights and major intersections. There are numerous school buses, and there's a large social security building next door to the school. There was a ton of traffic at that time. Those intersections are packed. So even though the Best Buy is about one to one and a half miles away, it is nowhere near a quick trip at that time of the day. Four. The state presented that the murder took place in the parking lot of the Best Buy. Now, please keep in mind that at the time, I was 17 years old, like 5'11", 155 pounds. Hay was eight.